Through December and into the turn of the year, the On Being blog is offering a lovely series of seasonal reflections. Check in often to enjoy a nuanced and eclectic range of wisdom from our contributing writers. And we're collecting them all at onbeing.org slash seasonal reflections. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Adam Gopnik. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and as always, at onbeing.org. Um, okay. So, Chris, are, are we okay? Um, and do we have a hard stop at uh, 4.30? I mean, we'll finish by then, but I just want to... Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah, they, yeah, they said to me that we could go till 5. Yeah. Uh, great. Yeah, great. Okay. Well, I, we'll try to do 60 to 90 minutes, but, you know, we're going to have a real conversation, oh. and that can take time. Okay, great. Okay. Um, great. All right. So... Um, you know, it seems to me that, uh, well, f- let me just say, first of all, it was, um, you know, I've read you for years, kind of, you know, uh, you know, at, at regular intervals, um, but it was really fun to just pull all your stuff together. I've been in your books. I've been going back through your archives oh, and uh, even listening oh, yeah. to some of your stuff on the BBC. So it was just, it's been, mm-hmm. a, it's been lovely. It's been a great week. Um, and there's, and what I'm mostly aware of now is how much we won't talk about. Um, so <laughs> but maybe we, maybe the, we can talk BBC about these stuff, other things at dinner parties. Um, the BBC stuff, I have to say, though, it's completely invisible here for obvious reasons. It's stuff that I've been greatly enjoyed doing because it gives me a certain kind of voice that I don't have access to in the magazine these days. Well, I was so amazed that you're doing things for BBC Four. I love BBC Four. I lived in England for a couple of years. I stream BBC Four. I listen to the Today program every morning instead of uh, NPR. (laughs) No, I love it. The idea of being heard on Sunday mornings on Radio 4 in all of those British households tickles me so deeply. Uh, I I get it. I get it. I'm impressed. Um, so, well, so it seems to me that, um, it seems to me that you probably wouldn't say that you had a religious upbringing, but there was certainly a very rich religious background to your family and to your childhood. Is that, is that would you say yes, that Yes, I way? think that's true. I mean, it, it's complicated and manifold. I, on my mother's side of the family, I came from a long line of rabbis. Yeah. And my grandfather, my great-grandfather, I should say, had uh, actually been kind of the black sheep of a family of rabbis in Hebron, in, yeah, in Palestine. Yeah, so amazing. Oh, in Hebron, of all places. Of all places. Yeah. And he got sent back to Lisbon to be the rabbi there uh, for the first time since the expulsion. A community of Jews had grown up in mm. Lisbon. Mm. That was sufficiently large, I think mostly merchants, diamond merchants and so on, that they needed a rabbi. And they got my grandfather belonged to a family called the Mannies. And according to family lore, that is stories my grandmother tells, we're yeah. told, uh, they also assembled some of the, the Murano, really, the, the uh, disguised clandestine Jews who were still left after, after all those years. So 
in that way, it was a uh, that background, the rabbinical background, was very strong in my life. At the same time, my parents, by the standard uh, turns and twists of generations, rejected the religious content of yeah. their up, own upbringing. My father too had been brought up in a. Uh, uh, an observant Jewish household. Was Yiddish his Yiddish. first language? Is that right? Yiddish was his yeah. first language. Mm-hmm. Yiddish was his first language, and he still. And of course, he's though he's a professor of 18th century English literature. He <laughs> still has that. And as I always spend a good deal of time teaching my children, for instance, the difference between a ganef and a schnorrer and a schmendrink. Uh, there's a famous New York grocer I won't name, but. I explain to the kids all the time, he is a ganef, but he's not a schnorrer. That is to say, he's a thief, but he's not a cheat. Overcharges, <laughs> but what he offers is of great quality. Mm-hmm. So that was very much part of my upbringing on my father's side. Uh, but my parents both rejected the religious content, the specifically religious and Jewish content of their upbringing. So much so it's like that old Woody Allen joke, right? You know, I went to a reform rabbi, a very reform, not rabbi, a Nazi. Um, and they weren't that extreme, but they certainly turned everything upside down and they made a kind of secularized faith out of the things that they had discovered and that they mm-hmm. had um, assembled for themselves. So one of the strange things in my upbringing was that we celebrated Christmas with enormous uh, intensity because it's a long, complicated story. One of my um, mother's uh, relatives was actually Irish Catholic that married in. As my father used to tease my mother and say, she came from a, a Jewish neighborhood that was so poor that they let Gentiles in. Um, <laughs> he came from a working class Jewish neighborhood, but they, even they wouldn't let Gentiles in. She hmm. came from a truly uh, working class Philadelphia Jewish neighborhood. Anyway, so Christmas had been part of our upbringing. It became a very important part of ours. And most of my early, I don't know how to call it exactly, spiritual experiences derived from this very strange and yet hardly idiosyncratic because it's actually quite widespread experience of a Jewish Christmas. And my <laughs> wife, who comes from a, a pious Icelandic Lutheran family, and there are no people as, um, how can we describe them, as little Jewish in the world as Icelandic Lutherans, <laughs> right. uh, arrived in my household as an 18-year-old girl, 19-year-old, I guess, and with alarm, discovered this bizarre, uh, eccentric uh, Jewish Christmas going on around her. But it, for me, it was a portal to, uh, I don't know what to call it, Krista, without sounding uh, uh, a little crazy. It was a portal to thinking about uh, numinous experience mm. and daily experience. And one of the things that came to be uh, hugely important to me were, was one of the kind of portals of my own experience of the numinous, the spiritual, call it what you will, uh, was uh, Christmas music, uh, the Bach Christmas Oratorio, uh, Handel's Messiah, medieval carols, which ultimately then led me to the great um, uh, Christian poetry of that time, and particularly W.H. Auden's great nativity poem, For the Time Being, which became a, a kind of uh, I don't want to call it a sacrament, but certainly was then when I was a kind of young man coming of age and to this day, uh, one of the, not just one of the great poems, but one of the poems that's most guided my own life. Can you say a little bit of that? Sure. Uh, Auden, as you know, had a very strange and specific entry into his own Christianity. And what was odd about Auden's Christianity is that he came upon it 
partly inherited it from his parents, but strongly rejected it in the 1930s when he became a famous poet, kind of the Bob Dylan of his era. And then in the course of falling in love again with a young man with Chester Coleman, famously so, uh, he rediscovered, and also in the rejection of his Marxism, he rediscovered a particular very rich, if idiosyncratic form of Christianity. And the core idea in it, or at least the core originality in it, as I understood it then as I understand it now, was that instead of seeing his own unsatisfied, perpetually unfulfilled, uh, perpetually tormented, erotic experience, instead of seeing that as a form of sin that uh, kept you away from true spiritual experience, from a true epiphany, he saw his own erotic experience, and by extension, the mixed up and in every sense screwed up erotic experience that we all have, as one of the ways that uh, spiritual experience is offered to us, that it was exactly his miserably messed up love for the very promiscuous Chester Coleman that gave him some entry into what it was to love purely, into Mm. what it was to love for love's sake rather than for possession's sake. So one of the things that makes that poem um, so beautiful is uh, exactly that there's a whole long section where where the romantics, as he calls them, are praying at the nativity. And it's clear that the romantics in that context stand for gay men. That's really who they are. And they're there to... And I wish I could remember. I don't have the poem in front of me now. But um, exactly to say that those of us whose experience of transcendence is rooted in our carnal uh, passions still have uh, a place at this staple. That's essentially what the, mm, what the poem says. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same theme as this very famous lyric poem written around the same time, a little earlier, um, Lay Your Sleeping Head, My Love, um, Lay your sleeping head, my love, human on my faithless arm. Um, uh, time and time and experience which weaves away human beauty from indifferent children. It goes on in that way. Mm. But the basic idea is, is that there's a very close clandestine relationship between all of the the miseries and joys of carnal love and the truer <laughs> miseries and joys of religious experience. Mm -hmm. And that sense that you could have a, I wrote once, Kristen, I'll try and clean it up once because I I wrote it in a, in a, in a slightly uh, uh, off color way that where. um, uh, This is public radio uh, now. Yeah, exactly. That where traditional, conventional Christian morality said, um, uh, love thy, know thy, uh, uh, know thy, spouse, but love thy neighbor, he said, know thy neighbor, but love thy spouse. In other words, that you could be, you could practice or you could be the captive of uh, endless carnal appetites and still see through them to spiritual experience. And that much more humane and complicated way Hmm. of imagining the relationship between, if you like, the body and the soul was something that, uh, that changed my life. There's a beautiful passage at the end of the poem as well that's called After Christmas, sometimes anthologized um, by itself. And in it, he, the climax of the poem, similarly, 
uh, which I actually, I did not know at the time when I read it as a kid, but I know now he had actually paraphrased from Kafka, hmm. is that, um, uh, how does it go? God will cheat no one, not even the world of its triumph. And the hmm. idea at the core there that part of God's will is to allow the material world to have its triumph and will not be cheated of that, but that that's an expression of uh, divine plan, if you like. That was, again, uh, a rich thing. At an absurd, uh, materialist, embarrassing level, but one that I think was very much implicated in Auden's own poetry, hmm. it also has to do with the relationship between greed and uh, epiphany in our own uh, yearly experience of Christmas. You know, one of the things that's <laughs> right, true right, about right. an American Christmas is we prepare it for our children and as we've done. We stay up till four in the morning assembling bizarre boxes from Ikea that uh, uh, are meant to be igloos or teepees or whatever they're going to be the next morning, is that we do train our children. We do accustom our children to the joys of greed, of wanting, of desiring. And though we try and curb them and channel them, nonetheless, that's part of who we are. And yet there's some decent part of ourselves that imagines that through that experience of desire and satisfaction, some larger experience of what it is to, to want and what it is to be given uh, will fill their hearts in a way that will enable them to empathize with other people's wants and the joy of other people's uh, well, really, yeah. fulfillment. And so I think all of that stuff was, was implicit in that, uh, in that poetry and in that, in that writing. I wrote once a chapter, I wrote a very obscure book about winter. It's, yes, it's well known in Canada, uh, where people care about winter. It's on my maybe desk it has upstairs. Five, yeah, maybe it has five or six readers in Minnesota, right? As a kind of <laughs> cadet Canadian province, but it's totally unknown in America. But I, one of the things I wrote about, I wrote a whole chapter called uh, "Recuperative Winter" about the making of the modern Christmas. Uh, and one of the things I said there was that it seemed to me that almost all of our holidays, religious and otherwise, um, were either uh, 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 restoration feasts or uh, uh, overturning feasts. I forget the word I used for it, for it. I had a better word for it there. But the basic idea is, is that basically we have a feast day, like Thanksgiving, uh, to remind us of all the continuities of our life, or else we have a holiday like Halloween where everything is turned upside down. Everything is turned upside down for one day. You're allowed to do things you're not normally allowed to do. Kids take the lead. You cry trick-or-treat. You can even soap up a window if you're, uh, if you're <laughs> compelled to do that. And one of the things that's interesting about Christmas is that it's both. It's both. It's both a holiday of continuities and of reunions and of uh, taking it on. And at the same time, in its deep spiritual core and in its actual practice, it's the world turned upside down. It's, uh, it's so uh, interesting, you know, because I never expected, um, f I never expected for you to speak at length about Christmas in this way. <laughs> but, I'm sorry, know, I'm going on too long. No, I didn't mean to. No, 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 that, no. Don't worry. I'll no. It's a real conversation. I'll um, I'll I'm, I'm I'm here too. I'll I'll jump in. I you know one thing I want to um, one thing I noticed as I started reading kind of through the sweep of your work. Also, as you say, you, you reflect in so many ways on um, the Bible and spiritual life and what is numinous and, as you said, daily and rational and the, mm -hmm. the contradictions between those things. And mm -hmm. it also seemed to me that, that Darwin, 
that thinking about Darwin, reflecting on Darwin, being in dialogue with Darwin mm-hmm. is a real thread for you. And I just wondered, no. you know, if you could just talk about what, you know, how you discovered Darwin and what you discovered in him that has stayed with you, even as you navigate this, these kinds of things. The, Darwin, as I explained in my book, Angels and Ages, is a hugely important figure to me. Uh, I think I was first introduced to him by uh, my mother, who's a linguist and scientist. Uh, and I certainly was overwhelmed when I read uh, On the Origin of Species for the first time, as I describe, in, on a beach in... Uh, yes, that you discovered in, it could actually be beach reading. Yes, exactly, which I <laughs> yeah. suppose shows you why you should avoid me as a beach companion. Um, <laughs> right. Not a lot of fun. Uh, but... I actually, this is such a, an intolerable story that if anybody wanted to shut the radio off at the moment they heard it, they could. But I like to read difficult things on the beach because I find the beach is a good place to concentrate. So I actually read Finnegan's Wake one summer yeah, on the okay. beach in I, Cape Cod. I can't identify but I with did, that at all. But I did read On the Origin of Species there. And what overwhelmed me about On the Origin of Species is that uh, Darwin's note, he has this fantastically revolutionary idea to offer to put forward. He has profound evidence for it. But his note is one of a, of a suitor. His note is not one of a dogmatist trying to club you into submission about a new idea. It's one of the most kind of gentle, mischievous, witty uh, uh, lawyers, if you like, arguers trying to persuade you to it. And it's a wonderful thing that uh, the whole beginning of On the Origin of Species, this great epoch-making, consciousness-changing book, is not about the theory of evolution. It's about dog breeding and pigeon breeding. It says, you know how they breed dogs and pigeons and they get all those amazing varieties? So, well, here, let me tell you how they do it. Mm-hmm. They make selections and they do it consciously. And then he says, if you could do all that with dogs and pigeons in 50 years, imagine what nature could do with all of biology if you gave it essentially limitless time. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, you're, you're committed to the argument before you know that you're entrapped in it. You and know, I love that. Yeah. And one of, the way, one of the things that you talk about, that you write about so winsomely and that I just find so intriguing is, is and you just you use your time, you know, how Darwin has these notions of both quick time and deep time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, that was, that, yeah. That's, that's, I'm touched that you saw it because that was an important uh, idea for me that uh, you know how that is nobody noticed um, <laughs> yes I think that's true one of the things that gives Darwin's life and his work its enormous almost tragic pathos is, is that he was aware he became acutely aware of that evolution biological evolution only operates and only makes sense if you're able to open your mind up to geological time yeah. to the unbelievable you say this vast abyss of time is how you wrote it the yeah. vast abyss yeah. of time that it only really makes sense. That's why we can't see it happening. We, we, can, we can deduce its happenings, but we can't see it happening. We never will be able to. You know, it's like that famous story about the guy who watches the aquarium and doesn't see the fish changing, says Darwin must be wrong. And Darwin's whole point is it only takes place over these vast expanses of times that we can understand abstractly, but we can't experience. Yeah. And our own actual existence takes place in this tiny, brief uh, lightning flash of existence, and that includes the life of ourselves and of our loved ones and of our children, particularly. And I talk in the book about uh, his experience of his favorite daughter Annie, and who died tragically yeah. <clears throat> young. 
And what an and imprint no that question. left on him. How? Yes, mm-hmm. and there's no question that that experience was both one of the things that pushed him forward to finally publish uh, On the Origin of Species, which he had been reluctant to publish, partly because he was collecting data for it and wasn't quite ready, but also clearly because he understood what its consequences would be. And that uh, rhythm, that pathos, that tension between our actual experience of the people we love and the, the things that give meaning to our lives, so brief, so packed, something that only becomes more brief and more packed and more poignant as we age, against this limitless yeah. uh, seeming span of time that's responsible for our particular forms and for our particular capacities. That's a kind of pathos of which Darwin is acutely aware. Um, and it's essential, it seems to me, to, for lack of a better word, the spiritual experience of modern people, that we have to have double vision of exactly that kind. We have yeah, to be wonderful. double-dyed. And yeah. we need to be conscious of both those expanses of times at the same moment, at the same time, and that's terribly taxing, terribly, terribly taxing. <laughs> and so taxing that often people can't do it, and they either insist that only the vast expanse counts and what we think of as our experiences of no consequence, or they insist that only our immediate experience can count and that that vast expanse of time must be some kind of an illusion. Yeah. I mean, uh, here, I want to read just, just some of the, the language you wrote about this. It's just so beautiful. And you've said this all, but I just, you know, these are these beautiful please. sentences. There is the vast yeah. abyss of time in which generations change and animals mutate and evolve. And then there is the gnat's breath, hummingbird heart time of creaturely existence, where our children are born and grow and sometimes die before us. It was just so, and something else that you pointed out about Darwin that felt so important. I mean, it kind of, kind of echoes back at what you said a minute ago about Auden and the this kind of interplay, this synergy between misery and love, and and um, kind of the you know the human struggle between beauty and terror that that is also there in religion. And you you talked about. There's this beautiful passage in Darwin, which I've quoted many times, which is from the very end of The Origin of Species, where mm-hmm. he says, There is grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed into a few forms or into one, and that whilst this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms most beautiful and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. And you point out so importantly that that we can only understand the fullness of that passage when we also look at passages of his where he talks about <laughs> life in the moment. He said, you know, mm-hmm. we behold the face of nature bright with gladness. We do not see or we forget that the birds which are idly singing round us mostly live on insects and seeds and are thus constantly destroying life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, you know, it's funny that I think you understand those passages, particularly if you understand them as, in effect, letters to Emma, his wife, mm. who he adored and who was a believer uh, throughout her life. And it, for me, at least, some of the emotional pressure in those passages only makes sense if you see it as his way of saying to her, I know what you believe and I honor and love you for believing it. Here's what I know about the world. Here's what I know for certain or near certain is the way the universe actually operates. And here's why it shouldn't be a threat 
to your feelings and shouldn't be a threat uh, to your beliefs. And if you understand that, that as kind of Darwin's ultimate act as an explainer, as an explicator, as a reconciler, if you like, they only get more poignant. You know, it's funny because my oldest son, my only son, we called Auden. That's his middle name, Luke Auden. Yes, I after, did see that somewhere. Wonderful. Was, I love after, that. after Auden. And mm-hmm. had we had a second son, I think we would have given him Darwin mm. as a middle name. Mm. So we would have had an Auden and a Darwin in the family. So, so if I ask you how your study of Darwin and your, your, your reverence for Darwin, um, how does it influence your sense of religion? Um, how would you answer that question? Well, you know, it certainly influences my manner of writing because I always see Darwin as a model of the active explanation and of argument, the morality, the ethics of explanation maybe. Uh, you know, it affects my own – I don't want to dignify myself by calling it a religion, but it affects my own feelings about the universe because I think um, it's demonstrative of the possibility that you can be completely committed to a rational, if you like, material explanation of existence, of why, how we got here, without being committed to a reductive account of our own experience. You can believe that there's a completely rational account of how we got here, but that you can never fully rationalize what we feel here. That's central to Darwin's distinction between the two kinds of time. Mm. That's central mm. to Darwin's vision. And for me, Krista, that's always been the, in many ways, the hardest thing to explain and the hardest reconciliation to attempt. And whenever I've tried to do it, um, I've always felt that I managed to uh, enrage both ends without ever addressing the middle. Probably means you're doing something right. um, Well, or or everything wrong, right? You know, people who... uh, manage to infuriate everybody are either in the right somewhere in the middle or they're on their own edge. <laughs> but I do think that that's a point that I've tried to make again and again, and I, I sometimes despair of ever making it adequately. And, and that is ex- exactly that anybody who, like Darwin, who is committed to science is acutely aware of the limits of scientific explanation. Yeah. Um, you know, the greatest philosopher of science in the 20th century, Karl Popper, who I got to pay a pilgrimage to when I was a kid of 18 and 19, another uh, intellectual hero of mine, always, and it was sort of in lots of ways the most rigorous thinker on science, always said that the realm of science was small and distinct, that there was a huge realm of human experience that would never be susceptible to scientific explanation. Now, That didn't mean that it could be instantly subsumed in the supernatural, but that there were realms of what, for lack of a a better word, you can call it spiritual experience or numinous experience or irrational experience or simply the experience of sensibility, all the things that are summed up in Christmas carols and songs and poems and novels and spirituals and all the other ways we have of organizing our experience, that those things aren't contradictory, that... And again, that's central to Darwin's sense of human existence, and I think it's central to any uh, any person's. You know, here here's something you wrote about Darwin. Darwin disenchanted believers in heaven, but but he re-enchanted lovers of earth. He thought he had mm-hmm. found the secret of life, but he knew that nothing could solve the problems of living. That takes all the time we have. 
Did I write that? That's yes. good. Um, uh, that's right. That sums up what I think is exactly right. That he really believed accurately that he had discovered the secret of life. He had found the reason that species change, and he made the most astonishing prediction, maybe in the history of science, that if you dug down into the earth, you would find the bones and skulls of earlier men, uh, creatures that were someplace between apes and men, that you would find this great branching bush of humanity. It's exactly what we found in the hundred plus years of uh, since he wrote. It was exactly what we found. He yeah. really had found the secret of life, but he nothing could explain the mysteries of living. And I think that we live in that double in that double experience. Yeah, which is also the confusion that often brings us to the religious part of life and the things that religion brings into the world, like community and ritual and texts and teachings, um, teachings and yeah. and practices yeah. and and uh, uh, you know I think that that's one of the things that uh, it's funny. I was just writing about something the other day, Chris, because I'm trying to write a book right now of of uh, sort of memoirs of coming to New York in the 1980s and what that was all like. And one of the things that occurred to me is, is that I was in the art world in those years. You know, I was hang, you know, getting a degree in art history, God help me, and all that. And the weird thing about it is, is that I realized then that the entire understanding modern art really was like a religion in as much as it was a practice before it was a dogma. Mm, that yeah. You could never really get it by understanding the way one picture had changed another, how cubism had created expressionism, which created surrealism and so on, that it was a practice of interpretation. And I think that that's something that is still uh, insufficiently uh, well understood. But what religion brings us is not a dogma, but a practice. That's the rich thing it brings us. Mm -hmm. That's the significant thing that it brings us. And that the idea of having a, a spiritual practice is one that's completely compatible with the idea of being extremely skeptical of dogma, that those two things are not at war. They may be intention the way so many rich things in our life are intention, but they're not at war. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Einstein used to draw, see echoes, he's, you know, would say the, that, that a sense of wonder is at the heart of the best of religion and science and the arts. Mm -hmm. I mean, he used, to, he used to see those things as at, at, their, at their heart, at their richest... Um, Overlapping yeah, in that way, speaking absolutely. to each other. Absolutely, I think that the where uh, where science and certain uh, aspects of religiosity do part company is science demands that we be skeptical even of our own favorite theories, and there's a aspect, there's a side of of religious tradition that is like that. It demands that we be argumentative uh, about them. I did, before Yom Kippur this year, I did a talk at the one of the local synagogues. I, you know, I, I'm not a good enough Jew to be confident that God will be writing my name down in the book, but I was thinking, you know, I'm here, I'm talking, right? Doing my bit, God, you know, don't be too harsh. Um, and uh, one of the things I was saying is, is that one of my favorite uh, art historical uh, treasures uh, is the what's called the Darmstadt Haggadah, which is a medieval mm. Jewish illuminated manuscript. There aren't very many of them, and I perversely chose to do it when we had to do illuminated manuscripts in the seminar I was in. And all it shows is Jews arguing about the text, and that's a very, as you know, a very very important part of 
uh, Jewish well, Moses ways. Moses quarreled of, with God. I mean, it's there. Exactly. Yeah. That that our our what's if there's something distinct about uh, Jewish interpretive tradition, it's it's an argumentative tradition. Yeah. We argue with God. We argue with each other. We argue with the text, and I think that that's a really rich way of thinking about uh, the the part of faith that really does have uh, a significant overlap with uh, the way we read all kinds of great books and with the way that we go about understanding the world. You know, you wrote a piece in 2014 that I really loved in The New Yorker um, called Bigger Than Phil. Um, yes. Which was... Which was um, it was about um, it was about skepticism about religion and some writings mm-hmm. about that. Actually, can you tell the story? Remember, remind me what bigger than Phil was an allusion to. Oh, in, funny story. in one of my sacred texts, uh, Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner's two thousand year old man stories. Uh, Carl Reiner is interviewing Mel Brooks, who's playing the two thousand year old man, and he asks him about the origin of religion. He said, "How did religion begin?" He said, "Well, in the beginning, I can't do Mel Brooks Mel Brooks's voice. Well, in the beginning, we all worship a guy, Phil." It's the biggest man. And then something from the blue, a lightning bolt comes and hits Phil. And we all look at each other and say, there's something bigger than Phil. <laughs> and that for me, I thought it was such a great uh, bit of comedy because it's exactly right. That's where our sense of the divine or of a deity comes from. There's something bigger than Phil. Yeah. Uh, and probably no mistake, no accident, right, that it's so often localized in the uh, the image of the thunderbolt, because that tells you immediately there's something bigger than Phil. Yeah. So that's where I got the that's where I got the 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 title the the jocular title of the piece from. I mean, and in that in that piece, a bigger than Phil, you you reflected on the kind of ironic way. Um, you know, we can debate, and when I say we, I also, you know, I mean, uh, in educated circles about whether God is winning or losing, or religion is in or out, and the answer may come back no in certain dis- that there is no God in some discussions, and yet, um, um, you know, in most of the world, as you say, the eyes seem to be doing fine, and uh, yeah. but you did say that um, that there's a there's a there's a directly, frankly, contemptuous tone about faith that that is relatively new in the last 20 years. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, the so-called new atheists, of course, are more belligerent probably in their, uh, with whom I have a great deal of intellectual sympathy, yeah. are more belligerent in their tone. Tone matters a lot. Tone and temperament, I think, matter a great deal. They're pretty much everything that a writer has on hand, even when your ideas, very few people have, and very few times in our existence do we have really good new ideas, but we always have the possibility of crafting a tone or crafting a temperament. And coming back to Darwin for a moment, one of the points I wanted to make in my book on Darwin was that Darwin's tone and temperament were mm-hmm. as significant as his arguments. Uh, right. And that, I think, is, an, is, a, is another model. So. I, I do think tone and temperament count for a, an enormous uh, an enormous amount, and exactly uh, and to add a third T to that list, the toleration depends on finding the right tone and temperament with which to put up with other people's idiosyncrasies. Right. The one thing that was I found disturbing about, and I, to be honest with you about that, uh, the aftermath of that piece, which I knew was going to be controversial in the way such things always are, is I. I was trying to make the point that anybody of uh, 
even the most uh, violent rationalist always had within their own practice, their own imagination, their own way of, of, of relishing the world, they always had particular idiosyncratic irrationalities. We all do. Um, and so I instanced my friend Jerry Coyne, who's a wonderful evolutionary biologist. Yeah. He has a blog that's devoted to flogging believers and <laughs> praising cats. That's when the two things go on in Jerry's in right. Jerry's blog. And any anthropologist looking at that blog from a hundred years from now would say, "What's really going on here is that someone is showing simultaneously that you can be violently opposed to." Uh, the dogmas of religious belief, and still have a core set of emotional values that you put forward, if not as an alternative, then at least as a uh, as an anchor, as a way of seeing things. And Jerry was very upset about that. And then I also made the point that uh, the kinds of arguments that are made by theologians that try to uh, uh, create a kind of a you know classic theological logical argument for God tend to, at this point, since you can no longer turn to the design of the eye or the design of the, of the mind or something, that tend to be extremely abstract, that tend to depend on an idea about a ground of being or about a kind of ultimate mover, right. which is fine as far as that argument goes, but doesn't supply the, the, uh, the, the giver of diets and the maker of moral rules that's another thing we demand from an idea of God. And mm -hmm. that infuriated the theologians. <laughs> so I managed to infuriate uh, both sides of, of that. But what I really wanted to say, again, was the point I was trying to make, was that it's not only possible, it's essential that you distinguish between uh, the very limited and specific domain of experience that science, properly so-called, can explain, and the vast areas of experience that science doesn't claim to explain. I did a piece for the New York Times with my sister. My sister's a developmental psychologist uh, and also a sort of Buddhist. She just had a piece in the Atlantic Monthly about her, uh, about the relationship between Buddhism and uh, the philosophy of David Hume, fascinating mm -hmm. historical detective story. Anyway, my sister and I wrote, collaborated on a piece about siblings for the New York Times. Actually, I was playing hooky from the New Yorker. Um, and the, in the piece, she made the point as a scientist that there will never be a science of sibling relations. We can learn a lot about them. You know, there's wonderful studies of how oldest children, coming back to Darwin for a minute, uh, tended to reject Darwin and youngest children tended in the British scientific establishment to accept Darwin because they like oppressed youngest children like re rebels, right? And um, uh, spoiled older children identify with authority. And you're, a, so, you're six children in your family, right? So I'm that's six a very kids complex my, six dynamic. Kids in my family. Yeah. Very complex dynamics. Yeah. And my sister Allison, I realized in writing it how complicated that dynamic was. Oldest against middles, middles mm. against youngest. Mm boy youngest against uh, girl oldest. And Allison's point was, is you will never be able to come up with a good, with a true scientific description of a, of a cosmos, of a solar system of siblings that complex. On the other hand, if you wrote a novel about it, if you wrote a poem about it, you would begin to approach something closer to understanding. Yeah. That there's huge realms of our experience that are absolutely central to our sense of the meaning of things, that will never be uh, susceptible to scientific explanation. And scientists themselves are the first people, genuine ones, to see that. 
But the alternative to that isn't just sort of anarchy and everyone for himself. It's other kinds of organized inquiry right. that well, we're responsible for. And, and I have to say, something that what I found most gripping in that piece, Bigger Than Phil, and then mm-hmm. which I feel is also um, in this, this foreword you've written to this new book, The Good mm-hmm. Book, in which a lot mm-hmm. of uh, writers and thinkers reflect on books of the Bible, and, and they're all mm-hmm. across the spectrum in terms of whether right. you call them you know, believers or you know, atheists, religious, whatever. Skeptics. But right. the, yeah, but the, the subtler, more enduring point, I think, um, that you make is that, you know, aside from, you know, the battle between the new atheists and every, and the religious, is, right. is this idea that, and this is how you said it, modern people, precisely because of the, the reality that you just described, the, the, the way, what it is to be human and how we experience that. Um, you say modern people are drawn to faith, well, are drawn to faith while practicing doubt, just as our ancestors professed doubt, even as they practiced faith. Yeah, don't you, you know, don't you think that's true? Yeah, it's such that, an interesting... But as you say, it's taking many forms. It's very fluid. It's very fluid. It's not structured as that old established faith uh, could be. Right. And, you know, I give, I think, a list of five. When I was in the synagogue the other day and I gave a version of that chapter as a talk and I said, I'm going to talk about six different ways we can read scripture, the aesthetic and the anthropological antagonistic accommodationist. And when I was done, and, you know, I humbly, so to speak, asked for questions. The lady said, you said six, you only gave us five. <laughs> and I had to improvise on the thing because I really was true. I had miscounted. I said, well, you know what? The sixth is sort of like the, the, the prophet. You know, it's like Elijah. He's waiting for us outside the door. And sure enough, being an audience of New York Jews, we came up with two more, the allegorical and the argumentative. <laughs> and so they, they produced it. The audience produced it. Uh-huh. I did not. But I do think that that's true. Um, I think that we, uh, uh, one of the things that's always, I think, uh, emphasized by I, whatever, people of faith, uh, religious mystics, is that there can't be any true faith that isn't susceptible to enormous sieges of doubt. Uh, C.S. Lewis, who's a writer yeah. with whom I don't often agree, but for whom I have enormous respect, emphasizes that in all of his writings on faith. The doubt is part of faith. Losing your faith is one of the ways that you know you have it because you're constantly testing it. Um, I had a dear friend, uh, Wilfred Sheed, great critic and a Catholic writer, and that was part of his lived experience of faith was doubting it. How could you not yeah. doubt it given the uh, what happens? And that's very much the way people of of uh, of faith, if you like reason. But I think in our time, those of us who grow up in doubt, who accept scientific skepticism as a foundational part of our worldview, also are drawn again and again to kinds of faith, to spiritual practice. My sister Allison uh, was drawn at a crisis moment in her life, as she writes about very beautifully in Atlantic Monthly, to the practice of Buddhism uh, because it seemed to offer uh, spiritual avenues that were essential to her life then, and then found it coming back around again to David Hume and the psychology hmm, that yeah. she believed in. We talked earlier about how uh, irrationally I've been drawn to uh, the music of Christmas uh, my whole life in literature, yeah. and that uh, as a way to the 
assertion of or of the recognition of the multitude of experience we have. You know, of all the books I've ever written, uh, Krista, the one that was most important for me and to which I poured the most of myself and my own personal mythology was a apparently a children's book I wrote called The King in the Window, which I wrote for my son, Yeah, I looked at that. I have that, too. It's wonderful. And that's sort of the black hole of all my work because I poured so much of my own mythology into it that I fear that very little light came Hmm. radiating back out. Hmm. Um, But I did try there to write as best I could about um, what the experience of soulfulness was. You know, it's about... It's in a you know a, in the form of a fantasy, but it's about uh, a father who's lost his soul to the master of mirrors, uh, uh, an evil demiurge who lives inside uh, uh, lives inside mirrors, and has now transposed his evil into the world of screens, which are the mirrors of our time, and how his son has to enter the counter world of windows in order to rescue him, even. Uh, abbreviating the allegory, I think, suggests how horribly tortured and baroque it became. But nonetheless, I tried to to put as much of myself and my own uh, set of beliefs into that book as I could. Well, you know, there was a, there's a lovely passage in, in that in the article you wrote again where you said, um, true rationalists are as rare in life as actual deconstructionists are in university English departments mm-hmm. or true bisexuals in gay bars. In a yes. lifetime spent in hotbeds of secularism, I have known perhaps two thoroughgoing rationalists. Say, say some more about that. This, well, it, it comes back to the to the point I was making that yeah. we, as uh, as doubters, practice faith as our believing ancestors practice doubt in their in their lives. That in our daily lives, I don't think anybody uh, can or would want to escape some practice of ritual, some rite of the irrational that gives shape and meaning to their life. I remember it was very, my father, as I said, strongly rejected uh, the, um, uh, the religion of his father's, you know, the, the yeah, explicit yeah. Judaism that he had inherited. And I wrote once that the, the, his, our Jewishness was visible on us through the marks of the eraser, which were stronger than the writing act of writing itself. Hmm. And he said to me once when we were when I was growing up, he said, you know, we were crossing over a river uh, on in the car. He said, you know, I always say a prayer when I'm in a big body of water, river or ocean. <laughs> I always do. And that stayed with me. Yeah. And I, you know, have my own little meditation practice. You know, every day I do 20 minutes of breathing and, and inwardness. And at the end of it, and you'll forgive me for, for this embarrassing revelation, but I always, and I never thought about it, but it's really, I suppose it's in affinity with my father. I bow at the end of it to the four rivers that have mattered most in my really? life. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And one north, one east, one west, one south. The four places that I've lived in, the, all four cities that I've lived in in my life all have rivers running through them, mm. maybe significantly. And my children think appropriately that it's the ho- most hilarious thing that they've ever seen in their life. And they, they'll snicker and prod each other at it. And it's one of those moments when you don't mind ri- looking ridiculous, when you know you're yeah. looking ridiculous, and you hope that in the long run it'll have some significance uh, for them. And I think that I may be more ridiculous than most of my contemporaries, but I think we all uh, participate in some form or another 
of that ridiculousness, some form of a rational ritual that's essential to our existence. And in that sense, I know very, very few thoroughgoing rationalists. I essentially know none. And I think that's part of the richness of um, modern living. You know, I, I, I wrote once not, not long ago that we're constantly being asked to choose between uh, allegorically, you know, uh, symbolically, between uh, uh, Athens and Jerusalem, meaning between the Greek world of yeah. rational reasoning and the Jewish world of uh, ethical imperatives. And I always say, between Jerusalem and Athens, give me Alexandria. Alexandria being the great Egyptian cosmopolitan city where every kind of faith and every kind of spiritual practice all came together in a wonderfully syncretic way. Yeah. And I think that yeah. we can make, we have a, a right and a license to um, make up our practices of the many practices that we're exposed to and have inherited. Well, what's, what I really appreciate about the way you reflect on this and write about it is that, you know, you do, you talk about the syncretic mixture of rituals that we come up with as modern people and but you do it. There's a very there's a tenderness to it. I mean, you as you said. I mean, there's something, whatever this is that we're trying to address in ourselves and in in human experience. It's kind of in the nature of the thing that what we're doing be, doesn't completely make sense, and yet it has meaning. And you to did be you, mixed up. Yeah. Yeah. The point I was trying to make, Krista, yeah. is is that all religious experience, yeah. as, as far back as we can yeah. take it, none of it is pure, authentic, unadulterated. Yeah. The Christianity practiced in the year 100 is radically unlike yeah. Christian practice now. Christians don't always like to admit that, but it's so. Yeah. Same thing is true of, of Judaism. Same thing is true of all the great religious traditions. They have changed within themselves. They've taken on the coloration of their time and temperament and of the local color as much as anything can. So any notion of a, one of a true, authentic faith always leads us backwards towards fundamentalism. Yeah. And fundamentalism is a betrayal of the varieties of religious experience, yeah. not, a, not an assertion of them. So I, you know, I'm, uh, I think that if you, you know, if you're a, a New York City father, when your kids turn 13, one of the things that happens is you go through the bar mitzvah year. I don't, I, or the bat, bat mitzvah year, yeah. right? And you can't help but have a little smile on your face as you see the desperate ways in which people try to reconcile a very ancient, uh, uh, complicated religion of Judaism with contemporary materialist, competitive New York. And <laughs> right. it's often extremely comic, the scale of the invitations, the, you know, the nature of the celebrations and so on. But you also recognize that there's something fundamentally healthy about that. Yeah. That it's our <laughs> task as people to find new ways of rearticulating our sense of spiritual practice, our sense of the essential, the necessity of a rational ritual in ways that 
that are adjusted to their time. And I think that's more beautiful than it is absurd, though it is at times absurd. What you did, you talked about Upper West Side Bar Mitzvahs, where the 13-year-olds interpret their texts into an acceptable NPR editorial. Yes. Um, But but also, you you know, there's this moment, and again, I keep coming back to that piece bigger than Phil, where you you talk about how, you know, the the hardest... uh, rationalists who people who would define themselves that way you know still you know the, you talk about their syncretic mixture of rituals they polish menorahs or decorate christmas trees meditate on the great beyond say a silent prayer like candles you know at the end you, you talk about them going to services and leaving early but you said you will know them by their faces they are the weepy ones in the rear <laughs> yes well that's self-description i think is, okay. as much as, <laughs> as, as much as anything you know it's something that i'm i'm acutely aware of you mm. know when we um uh, go off to you know uh, Christmas Eve uh, uh, services, which we do with a clear conscience because my wife's uh, Lutheran background. Yeah, and of course, what's kind of comical about that is we just came back from Iceland, and in Iceland, if you're really hardcore, you're a pagan these days, right? They go right back <laughs> to the to the pre uh, uh, to the pre Christian uh, tradition. In fact, they were converted by Armenians. Did you know that? I no, by, I did by, not. Evangelists from the Armenian Church, which really were had come from someplace from Russia. But in any case, I'm always aware that I am the weepy one in the back and yeah. unashamed of it. Um, so in this in this foreword, you wrote to this book called The Good Book, which I, I think is a lovely. It's a lovely. Have you have you read all the essays? I have read as as many as I can yeah, by the yeah. writers who I'm uh, have deep allegiance to, like Alec yeah. Wilkinson. Yeah, so. I mean it's it it really I think does justice to the richness and complexity of the texts and how they resonate in lives. And um, you know, even your opening line, "How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land?" which is from the Psalms, and and how mm-hmm. should we read the Bible in a secular age? There's something about the way you've written it, and I don't know if this was intentional, where mm, even in the language you use, that it, it, it's kind of a, an, il, an il, illustration of the fact that the questions and vocabulary of this book, whatever you think of it, um, continue to have this, to be appealing and apt in some way. Yeah, I wanted that rhythm. I wanted yeah. to have to have the sense of that um, uh J, you know, Jacobean, King James Version kind of rhythm, because I thought that was uh, a, a way into it. You know, one of the things that you struggle for as a writer is to make sure that the shape and sound of your sentences reflects the, the, their substance. That's yeah. what writing is, is making the shape and sound of your sentences reflect their substance. When I was writing that book, Angels and Ages, about Darwin and Lincoln. Which is a wonderful took, book. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. It's yeah. my, again, one of my many orphaned Orphan books, mm. but it was um, uh, what I was going to say. It, the alliteration that that book begins with was something that I like to play with. That kind of nineteenth-century alliteration right yeah. through that book, and I actually buried a little joke in the book, which nobody got, and that is that I talked about the enormous power that Darwin and Abraham Lincoln is the other subject of the book got out of monosyllabic summations. So I made sure that the last line of the entire book was entirely composed. In monosyllables, but no. As I say, that's you know, you you you, you live with that. Yeah. Right. But um, but I do think that the that one of the things I wanted to say in the introduction to the good book was that the question before us isn't so much should we continue to read these stories, 
we do continue to read those stories. It's not, should we continue to be inspired by the Psalms? We are inspired by the Psalms. We study Italian Renaissance art. It's part of our common heritage. It's not a, it, it's not a realistic choice to say we will rationalize ourselves out of uh, this side of our inheritance. Question is, is how do you, how do you approach yeah, it? Yeah, and the how do we point, do it? How do we do it? Mm-hmm. And the point I always I try to make in that chapter, and I always try to make, is that the choice before us is never between uh, the scientific, if you like, and uh, unthinking embrace of the supernatural. The choice is always between recognizing the limits of true scientific explanation and the illimitable realms of sensibility, many of which have come to us, those realms of sensibility come to us through the transmission of the spiritual. Oh. Through, mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the, the central thing to understand. There's, there's also something in there about that kind of echoes what we said a minute ago, that for you, um, and I'm... I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on this, that, you know, when people think about what's interesting about religion, uh, it, it, the humanity is, it, you know, every bit as fascinating as the divinity and every bit is central. And, you know, again, here's some beautiful, here's some beautiful sentences of yours. A desert religion, dark universe of pain into which the light and justice, light of justice and mercy occasionally breaks and in which we find small shadowed stations of poetry or nativity to comfort us. Made by men and women, the Bible is populated by people. That's what makes it and leaves it an open book. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, one of the things I was thinking about in that in that section, and it's something actually I've been thinking about a lot in the last couple of weeks because of a piece I'm trying to write about children's books based on Greek mythology and children's books based on Norse mythology. Mm. I'm sure you've got the Dolaire Greek and Norse myths in your library. Absolutely. And the crucial books, golden books. I don't. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I should. <laughs> the beautiful illustrated yeah. uh, stories. The thing I was thinking about is, you know, what's the special quality of biblical myth? Just treating it as one element in the world's myths. And we think about one of the things that makes Greek myth so fascinating is that it offers in in sort of allegorical form things we know are true about the world. You know, Aphrodite, love, um, is married to labor, to work, to Mm. Hephaestus, Mm. the Vulcan. Mm. But she's really in love with war, right? She carries on a wild sexual infatuation with war. And immediately we say, that's true, right? Mm. Love marries work, (laughs) but is enraptured with violence and Mm. and the irrational, right? So we know that's true. That's part of the the virtue of Greek myth in a more uh, immediate way. You know, the Greek recognition that the greatest teachers— are the wild men, the centaurs. Mm. Boy, we all know that that's true, right? That we learn more from the wild men than we do from the tame men mm. in or women in our lives. Um, what's the special quality or virtue of, if you like, Jewish myth, of biblical myth? And it's exactly that it's people. It's people, mm. unforgettable yeah. people. Real and engaged real people, in, so flawed, so so well-rounded so and incomplete. Rounded. It's Job. Yeah. Yelling at his God, it's David and Saul, yeah. right? I mean, is there any more yeah. Jacob. Uh, deeply moving relationship? You recognize the yeah. the kid who's got all the potentiality and the king 
who knows it and hates him and loves him at the same time? How many relationships yeah. does that describe, right? Yeah. Uh, David and Absalom, right? The most heartbreaking moment in the Bible, right? Um, all of those things are, and it carries through, I think, to the to the Gospels. Yeah. Um, you know, that one of the things that makes Jesus, I've written at length about Jesus, makes him, whether an imaginary character or a well-reported uh player, one of the things that makes him so riveting is his enormous impatience with the people around him, right? Yes. That, and, and his sort of uh, almost uh, carefree morality, you know, don't worry so much about who's going to take care of you. The flowers don't worry. Don't you worry so much. You know, be, you know, feel free. Oh, it doesn't matter what you take into your mouth. All that matters is what comes out of your mouth. And you can just see everyone around saying, what did he say? What no. did he just say? Yeah. And that stuff, I think, it's the ability to create compelling character in the deepest sense. And the thing that makes character character is contradiction. Yeah. And the Bible is filled with mm-hmm. people who have deeply contradictory characters. Including God, by the way. Including God above all God, <laughs> who's there as yes. a benevolent uh, shepherd and is also there as a violent uh, demiurge who's mm-hmm. there in all of those ways. And that's one of the things, as I say in the introduction, the, of all those characters, all those contradictory characters, the character of the divine yeah. is the most contradictory and in some ways, therefore, the most compelling. Yeah. And I think that if we have a particular inheritance as, as people of the book, it's exactly that – it's the, exactly the contrary of fundamentalism, which sees something inerrant and authoritative. But when you actually look at what the, the text gives you, what the book itself gives you, it's the endless – fascination of the contradictions of human and divine character. Yeah. And if you enter into that, it's it's enormously enriching. So <clears throat> your children, your love for your children, your life with your children, the questions they raise in you, the reflections they spark in you, um, also runs all the way through your writing. And... Um, you know, you, you also wrote in a, have written in a wonderful way about... Um, yeah, your chil- children and what the philosophers call the problem of consciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think I think children also um, bring us back to philosophical and theological questions um, in a new way. And all, I'd love to the, just hear about that. Yeah. All the time, all yeah. the time. You know, it's one of the things that uh, it's strangely my sister. I have many sisters, and they're all brilliant women. But my sister Allison, who's a child psychologist, and I oddly enough have been working simultaneously in a twin-like way on the question of what children know, her from a mm. scientific end, me from a storytelling end. But one of the things that I think, you know, I'm one of those people who, for whom the moment when children appeared uh, was, was as close to a religious experience as any I hope to have. I was blessed to have it happen twice, partly because of the miracle of consciousness, you suddenly, uh, kind of an, a fictive being, the baby who will be born, becomes an actual human being. Yeah. And you look into those eyes and you say, those eyes are looking back at me. And that little head contain, in its little woolen cap contains the world fully as my head contains the world. Yeah. It's an astonishing thing. You never come to the end of it. But one of the things that's true, I think, is that you, uh, you get to the core of human experience through watching your kids. I wrote an essay once called Death of a Fish. Which yes, was I know. <laughs> on the surface. Yeah. I always say that good essays have to have an apparent object 
and a buried subject. Well, the apparent object of this essay was my then five-year-old daughter Olivia's fish, Bluey. A, a goldfish that a was goldfish. not actually a goldfish. A goldfish was not actually a goldfish yeah. and it was actually standing in for a dog, which we only got much later, <laughs> died. And we decided to go what my wife called the full vertigo in honor of the Hitchcock movie and replace that bluefish with another bluefish without telling Olivia. Of course, she sensed instantly that it was not the same fish. And she was grief-stricken. She was grief-stricken by it. At the same time, my son Luke was five years older, and he had become aware of the problem of consciousness. And he kept asking me, what does Bluey feel, the little Mm. fish? Does did he know he was alive so he can know in some sense that he's dead? Was he ever aware that he was alive? Those are deep questions. And what I realized in watching Olivia's grief over a little fish that was probably never conscious fully in our sense and that was certainly no more conscious than the flounder we ate for dinner is that the price of human consciousness is the knowledge of mortality. That's yeah. exactly the price we pay for it. We have this extraordinary gift of knowing that we are alive, and the price we pay for it is knowing that things die in ways that almost no other creature does. And I was just overwhelmed by that, sitting up with Olivia one night in this absurd grief for a (laughs) tiny bluefish, and I realized that that was the equation of human existence. But can I also also weigh in on this story? Please. Um, It also occurred to me that um, you and your wife, and I identify with you as like, you know, we're kind of these 21st century attentive parents um, who, you know, you wrote beautifully about Darwin and Lincoln together. And, we're, you yeah. know, that's one of the things like Paris that we're not going to get to talk about here. But yeah. but one thing you, you note about both of them is that they knew that death was real and death was everywhere, that it happened and would happen. And it's something that in our world, um, you know, we don't want to tell. Them. We don't want to. We don't want to think about it, and we don't want to. We don't want to factor it in. And it struck me also that you know you went to these great lengths to shield her from the fact that that the fish had died, um, which is what we do. And that to me, well, that I was, was also part of the story. Yeah, it was absolutely part of the story, and I was certainly. You know, it's, I'm certainly fully conscious of the absurdity of our behavior. Believe me, you know, it's a weird thing sometimes. You know, you'll, you'll dramatize obviously absurd behavior on your own part or on your own part, part of your wife. And people will say, is he not aware of that? Of course you're aware of that. It was an absolutely ridiculous thing to do. I hope it was touchingly ridiculous exactly because it was so common. It's yes. the silly no, way no, it might be, it's, we yes. try to protect yeah. our kids from that. Yeah. And of course, and this was the real point of the story, Olivia, the children see right through it. Yeah. See, instantly know that it was. I'll tell you a funny thing. Olivia never read that story as a story until she was much older. She was 12 or 13, became a really good reader. And... In the course of the story, we come up with a pathetic excuse that, that after she realized it wasn't the same Bluey, that he had gone to the fish hospital, even though Luke, our son, had warned us, don't tell her he went to the fish hospital. She'll never buy that. And she had believed it, actually, oh, no, that he had gone to the fish hospital and was extremely annoyed that we had, we had lied to her. And yes, of course, in a sense, the better thing to have done would have been to have said, Bluey has died as all things die eventually. But um, uh, here's where it is. But if we were better people, we would not be the people that we are. If we, if we acted well, we would not act uh, humanly. Can I tell you a really weird thing yeah. about that? It touches on that. I've just been writing about. 
at our um, when I got married uh, quite a few years ago now, the the text, the poem I chose to read at our wedding was from Issa, the great Japanese poet, the great Japanese haiku writer, and the poem was simply, "The world of dew is a world of dew, yet even so." And I had loved that poem because I thought what it said is, look, everything is passing and transient and changing, and yet there are things worth saving. There are, there are pieces of life, like your love for a beautiful woman, your getting married, that are worth saving. And that's how I used it sort of in my little speech. And it was years, 20 years went by before I found out, being the idiot I am, I found out the actual meaning of the poem is that Issa had lost the four-year-old daughter that he loved. And he meant just the reverse by it. He meant that the world of dew is a world of dew, and he knew that he ought to be stoical about this loss, but he could not be stoical, even as a good Zen Buddhist, about a loss this deep. Hmm. And I felt terrible in one way, right? I'd gotten it completely wrong. And then I felt okay about it, because the truth is th those are the same things seen at different moments in human experience, yeah. right? That yeah. the central idea is that we know that everything passes, we know that everything goes. It's Darwin's idea once again, but that we're not obligated to be indifferent. We can be wise, but that doesn't entail our being indifferent to it, whether it's the jubilation of a marriage or it's the unbelievable, the unimaginable mourning for a, a child, whether Issa or Darwin is doing the mourning, that we can hold both those ideas in our heads at once, that our sanity depends on it in yeah. part. And so this book I'm writing right now, Krista, is begins with getting Issa wrong and ends with getting Issa right. Hmm. And I hope in some ways then the two ends of it break together into one hmm. uh, coherent whole. You know, you and I um, have have beloved children who are just about the same age, young adults now at the same college, at Sarah Lawrence College. And um, I I'm thinking a lot now about you know, you talked about the the mystery of this actual human being in front of you, and then uh, the mystery of which, which which you know has loss and celebration all together. It's just still you know back to Auden, um, back to the Bible. Um, the mystery of the fact that these these people you gave birth to and raised are these surprising strangers that you you continue to discover them and they continue to emerge in ways it's, that you feel you had nothing to do with that is so you can, remarkable. You never get over it. You know, yeah. the, the, that it's not one person that you love and would give your life for. It's many people, yeah. and they continue to come at you in new ways. You recognize their continuities. Our son Luke is a continuity of being a serial obsessive. At any moment in his life, he's been totally obsessed with something, whether it was with Charlie Chaplin when he was two or with card magic when he was 12, or now with the classical guitar, which is his major at uh, Sarah Lawrence. Oh. We tease him and say he's majoring in uh, uh, classical guitar and minoring in ballet majors. That's sort of his, his, uh, right. his, his two uh, uh, obsessions. But the, and the kids are utterly who they always have been, yes. and they're utterly new. And then this terrible thing happens, Krista. It's not terrible. It's wonderful, but it's also kind of terrible that you say to yourself, I cannot imagine the day when a child will leave home because my entire life for 20 years has been structured around daily interchanges with this person. That's what I do. That's basically what I do. I work, I drink caffeine, and I talk to Luke. Those were the three things. And Olivia, my younger daughter. That's what my life is about. Uh, and then 
they're gone. And you're totally wrenched by that. And then you realize, of course, you did exactly the same thing to your parents. And the interstices of texting and conversations become a little more elongated every day. And you're pathetically grateful when <laughs> the phone rings and it's your, your kid and that they actually want to talk to you about something, usually late at night and they're moved by a poem or they're desperate for some advice or something. And you realize that that's the strength of your relationship is exactly that the interstices between phone calls get longer yes. rather than And that's what you shorter. raised them for, right? We, we were actually yep. raising them not to be our great children, but to go out in the world and have world, lives. And not to be our dependents, yeah. not, and, you, yeah. and we hope not to feel our, our pain, to not, and ultimately, we wanted them to have the same relationship to us that we have most often to our own parents, which is one of limitless pity and toleration, right? <laughs> That's the most we can ask for, is that they pity us, our absurdities, and they tolerate our frailties. As we pity and tolerate the absurdities and frailties of our parents, and even though we know that's the natural and appropriate human destiny, we can't quite, uh, we can't quite uh, take it all in. I said once that the truth is that every kid, when they reach 14, discovers that you are the most embarrassing, ridiculous, and annoying human being on the face of the earth. And all you can realistically expect to do is to eliminate one of those three descriptors as accurate. You can say, I may be annoying and um, embarrassing, but I'm not ridiculous. Or I may be, and this is what we say generationally, generationally, I think Chris is, I may be embarrassing and ridiculous, but I'm really not annoying. I'm actually a person you can talk to in ways that are not annoying. You, so it, it, yeah. you were writing about a family reunion, and um, yeah. I think that was recently. And you, um, mm-hmm. you talk, you use this very evocative fa- phrase, I want to ask you to draw it, the difference between those who are growing, those of us who are growing and those of us who are aging. And I think what you've been talking about is, is part of that dynamic for you now. But w- would you say that, some more about the distinction there? <laughs> th- yes, thank you, Chris. That was a thing I just wrote about three months ago, four months ago. Mm-hmm. We did a big family reunion. I come from this enormous family of uh, six kids, and we're sort of Jewish hillbillies. Everybody got married young and had kids, then they got remarried and more kids and adopted kids. So my immediate family is 35 people. You know, when you see the mm. photograph of the immediate family, it looks like a high school graduating class, <laughs> and there's an Asian wing and a, a Celtic wing and many different kinds. And one of the things that struck me this time when we were there is that pretty much everybody under the age of 35 is still growing. They're f- discovering. They're finding themselves. And you look at them, they look better and they look more <laughs> like themselves than they did before. And all of us are on the other side of that are aging, right? We, and we eye each other suspiciously, right? Getting a little tubbier, a little grayer, a little mm-hmm. balder, a little flatter. But the good thing about that, I've discovered, I would insist, is though it's true that those of us on this side are merely aging rather than actually growing, with every family reunion, we've had them every 10 years or so, you realize that the, the border of youth recedes. People who were past 40 in the last family reunion looked as though they were aging unduly. Now uh, it's moved to about 60, right? Oh, everybody yeah. over 60 looks yeah. a little bit aged, yeah. but everybody under 60 still looks 
pretty damn good. And I, and as I said, I, you know, I think it must be the fourth dimension because it's some some strange principle is at work there that means that I that um, people our age never really look old, even though we know we're aging. Yeah. Um, I don't know what it can possibly explain that, uh, but I do think it's true, and I think that one of the part of, and I'm not very good at this, God knows that you know that graciousness, if not grace, resides in being able to recognize that, again, that same duality, which is not a million miles removed from Darwin's duality, from the duality of immediate time and long time. Yeah. In this case, it's it's uh, maturation versus mortality. The under 35s are approaching the mature point. Yeah. Us mature ones are approaching <laughs> our mortal point. Yeah. And we have to... and. We have to accept it with as much grace as we can, as we can summon up, and it's not easy. It's not easy, you know. I think that we live in a society. It's hardly an original thought of mine, but it's true that values youth uh, uh, unduly in a way. We all want to be perpetually a teenager. I've I've often said that one of the pleasures of living in France is that French teenagers are so oppressed by the educational system yeah. that they don't really want to ever be teenagers again. And that in France, it's when you approach 40 that you get maximum time of sexual experiment and hmm. inebriation and all those things, not in your teenage years. So every French person wants to be 40. That's one of the <laughs> I like being in France rather than 17. But, you know, I when my kids have gone through those awkward places, you know, the awkward stages, which are a little bit different for girls and boys, but... Um, and then when they've just these these this metamorphosis that happens over and over again, I've, you know, I I kind of decided I'm trying to tried to make a decision to be fascinated by it and not terrified, you know, to let that be my, and I'm trying to do the same thing with myself about aging, and mm-hmm. I have to say it's a it's an attitude that does help a little bit. I think that's the only it's the only sane attitude to have. It's a hard one. To call up, it's a hard one when you're aging alongside another person, a, yeah. a husband or a wife. Uh, it's um, the one source, the only source of conflict, I think, between my wife and my son is about socks, because one of the affectations of students at that great liberal arts college, Sarah Lawrence, <laughs> is to wear geeky-looking socks, kind of. Uh, uh, kind of high white socks, and it's a kind of reverse spin on geekiness. You know that exactly by embracing a geeky look, you're showing your independence from the dictates of mere fashion, right? That you're you're not dependent on the yeah. conventional ideas no. of sexuality and appearance. It drives my wife crazy to see her beautiful son wearing white socks that come up <laughs> to his knees and looking uh, looking nerdy. So we always find something to be outraged by, <laughs> yeah. but it, 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 it changes. And, you know, the, the – how can I put this? There are moments of – parenting is the greatest thing that I think I've ever uh, done. And you realize as you parent, as you get older, and they get older, you realize that there is an uh, – how can I put it? There is a final asymmetry in parenting that it's built into the human condition that we love and worry about our children in ways that no matter how much they love and worry about us, they cannot do in symmetrically and, and yeah. fully. And that's 
in the nature of the human condition. We do the same with our parents. Yeah. We can never explain fully to our kids how much we worried about them, how much we do worry about them, how much we would do for them, how much they consumed our thoughts for as many years as they did. And they can't know that in some way. And if they did know it, they'd be crippled by yeah, it. Yeah, we, we don't can't want, want them, them to, to know, know it. it in some way. We yeah. don't want them to know yeah. it, but we know it. Yeah. But we know it, yeah. and we know it's so. And that asymmetry of, of, of affection, you know, I wore it once that, you know, in science, if you introduce an infinity into an equation, all the equations go bluey. It's one of the ways you know that a theory is wrong is when it produces an infinity because hmm. it just blows up all the equations. Well, in the equations of human existence, the love we feel for our children is simply infinite. Hmm. I don't mean that yeah. maybe infinitely bad or infinitely good, but no, just but it introduces that that wild card. It introduces that wild card. Okay. It introduces that irreducible irrationality into our existence, and it kind of blows up all the equations. And the infinity of that love, which is just sort of a fact about how we feel, yeah. is is not is blows up the all the other equations of existence. Yeah. And you just have to accept that. You just have to accept that and. You can't ask for it to be reciprocated, and the greatest mistake parents can make is to demand reciprocal affection of that kind. You can ask for tolerance, pity, respect, <laughs> understanding, <laughs> forgiveness, but the asymmetries of love between parents and children are built into the human genome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, we'll just go for about 10 or 15 more minutes. Is that all right? Sure. This is so wonderful. Okay. Of course. Um, I... You know, let's just circle back a little bit to this spiritual sure. stuff, which actually we have never left. We just have taken a wonderful route through it, our love for our children. Um, the <laughs> You use phrase, I think it feels important to you, too, uh, that we don't, you know, however we live with this stuff or talk about it or just exhibit it around our children, that we don't, that we don't make this too easy for ourselves, and not just with our children, for ourselves. I mean, you use phrases like um, the fudginess of faith, the soupiness of doubt, um, mushy, all-purpose humanism, which I notice are all kind of bad food texture metaphors. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> As you know, I am a, which is also I am a, way, a food lover. I'm yeah, a cook. Yeah, so, so I think th that's When I'm looking for something really visceral, <laughs> it's always food. Mushy, fudgy, soupy. Um, uh, just, just say a, a little bit about that, about the kind of dark side of not take, I don't know, that, yeah, that. Well, I, I don't remember the exact context in which I was writing that, but I think Well, these that are from different places. I was collecting these right. bad food texture oh, metaphors. Yeah. I think that, you know, I wrote a whole book called The Table Comes First that was yes. just devoted to this the spiritual side of gluttony. Yeah. Uh, really, that's really what it was about. It was about the central role that eating, sharing, cooking, yeah, it's also beautiful, devouring, yeah. plays in our, our family lives, our communal life, our national life, our spiritual life, um, that in a sense that the table comes first, that is before the food. And it's something that, uh, as you know, you know, it's one of the, coming back to talking about Jesus, that one of the, one of the most radical interpretations of Jesus' ministry is, is that it was all about who sat at the table. That when Jesus sat down with prostitutes or publicans or Roman soldiers, it was a wild violation of the decorum of mm. who you were allowed to eat with at the table. 
uh, at that time that, oh, that the feasts in the Gospels are not incidental settings. They are the central subjects of or among the central subjects of Jesus' teaching. Um, and at a, at a uh, uh, reduced level, I do think that uh, uh, w- one of the things that's a challenge, I guess, Krista, maybe if I can put it this way, is that those of us who are genuinely of an unashamedly secular and skeptical and scientific turn of mind, but who nonetheless have huge regard for the great realm of experience that call it what you will spiritual sensibility, however we define it, is we don't want to just become soupy, synthetic thinkers. We don't want to just say, oh, well, anything goes. If, you know, if you feel good about it, have at it. That's like bad table discipline. Yeah, yeah, Uh, okay. (laughs) And that we don't, uh, at the same time, I think we get impatient. You know, I talked a moment ago, we were talking about C.S. Lewis, right? And one of the things that's strong in C.S. Lewis's writing is the way that he always entangles doubt and faith as being parts of one thing. But at the same time, we don't, we want to say to such people, hey, wait a second, you don't get an instant out by citing your doubt when there's something wrong with your faith. You have to be willing to own up to the contradictions in your own creed. And I think that toughening, that's what I was referencing in those sections, I think, is that we have to sort of toughen up our own belief. There are, you know, there are, in life, there are simply incommensurable beliefs. It would be nice for people uh, of a basically uh, conciliatory turn of mind to believe that we can always reconcile uh, all the varieties of faith, of religious experience, of scientific understanding, and we can't. We can't. Yeah. That's not one of the possibilities that's that's open to us, and we have to be tough-minded and clear-headed about that. That doesn't mean we can't practice tolerance in the longest and largest possible mode, but we can't pretend that we all ultimately believe the same thing. We don't all ultimately believe. Yeah, and actually, the that's same where thing. I think your emphasis on tone is helpful because you have a you have a skepticism, or not a skeptic. You see a tension and tolerance, which I, I really I, I'm with you on that. That um, you know, we we don't want a world without passion, and we don't want a world without conviction, and um, that there's kind of a creative tension in in, in insisting on tolerance and. And it's kind of how we do it, um, and how we yes, how I think we keep that, it's that that integrity. One of the great things about modern civilization, one of the great things, if I may say, about liberal civilization, and I am a liberal before all else. Liberal in our in our conversations in America, particularly, tends to be a default term. Well, he believes in the liberal pieties, or he pretends to be a good liberal. Liberal for me is a positive, constructive, aggressive term because it it refers to a very radical and revolutionary set of beliefs. And among those beliefs is the belief that you can have genuine disagreement, passionate, profound disagreement, and still incorporate those kinds of passion, profound disagreements into a broad tolerant yeah, broad fabric right. of of tolerance. That being tolerant doesn't mean being wishy-washy or limp and saying, oh well, you know, they the the everybody's got their point of view and it doesn't matter if you're a fundamentalist or a secularist. Right, that's where you don't want se- tolerance to be mushy, fudgy, or soupy either. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. Tolerance isn't a soupy doctrine. <laughs> right. It's a plate-by-plate doctrine. It says, you know, <laughs> there's a place for you at the table, but you have a different diet than we do. Yeah. And that's that, I think, is that kind of clarity, 
I think is terribly important. And it's that kind of clarity that I would oppose to fudgy soupiness, which pretends that there aren't real and vital distinctions to be made amongst what people believe, that we can't simply constantly assimilate radically different worldviews to one common, goopy uh, 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 substance. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't stretch the fabric of tolerance, if you like, the table of tolerance, and make it as as long as we possibly can. Mm, wonderful. Uh, I think I, I think I want to read just another couple of more beautiful sentences from this foreword you wrote to the the good book um, on the subject of morality. You know, which mm-hmm. is a subject that gets very fraught when we talk about it in public. Um, you said. No moral idea worth preserving has been lost as the idea of God has diminished. But then a few sentences later, you also say, the paradox in our history has been that the renewal of humanism has come about most often and the most arresting questions asked of it by reexamining the old stories and asking them new questions. Yeah, well, you know, we come back, I think, Krista, to Auden again, the great poet Auden, my son's named after, because that's one of the things that makes Auden such an indispensable poet to modern people, is exactly that he understood uh, what it was to be a modern person, but found it indispensable to have a faith, in his case, a Christian faith, with which to interrogate uh, modernity, and that that was one of the things that makes him so powerful. I feel the same way, I think I cite there too, um, John Updike, great writer, probably the biggest influence on my own work phrase by phrase, is uh, also was somebody for whom uh, religion was indispensable and faith was indispensable. So, and certainly we think of Updike and Auden as humanist writers and as completely modern people in that way, and we could extend that list um, on and on. And I think that it's, uh, you know, what I tried to say in that section is, is that uh, it's not true, as believers will sometimes insist, that Without an idea of God, we necessarily lose our morality. It's simply not the case. It's, it's there are uh, many ways, m- many heroic ethical systems that are built on the foundation of non-belief. It's hmm. the way John Stuart Mill builds his ethics and many other great thinkers. So we don't necessarily lose anything. But at the same time, this is a point that I think I, you can never make enough. Atheism, non-belief may be a fact about the world, but humanism... Humanism is a thing we invent. It's a thing we make. It's a set of values we make. So the, so the just as the assertion of God doesn't give you a value system, the denial of God does not give you a value system either. Mm-hmm. Those systems are things we have to make for ourselves. And we make them, as we've been talking all this time, usually by addressing the old ones. We're not capable of making everything up for ourselves. So we go back to ethical systems and value systems that we've inherited, whether it's my sister's version of Buddhism, my own version of nativity, faith, whatever it might be, we go back to them and we remake them, we interrogate them, we remake them to find values within them that give meaning to our lives and sense to our generations in the biblical sense and so on. I think that, for me at least, Krista, that's a terribly important point, that the uh, negation of God doesn't uh, negate our morality, but uh, the negation of God doesn't supply us with morality either, yeah. that those are things that we have to make up for ourselves, and the only way we can make them is to remake them, mm. is to mm. 
go back to and ask again, what are the values we inherit? Which ones count? Which ones don't? We may be, uh, we may be ultimately in the universe on our own, but we are not on earth newly born. We descend from uh, long lines of people who have asked similar questions. I think those two, uh, th you can have hold those two convictions simultaneously and passionately. Wonderful. Let me just, just, just ask you this in closing. Um, you know, we talked a minute ago about the difference between those of us who are growing and those of us who are aging. And I think you, <laughs> like me, even though we're very young and vital, still feel like we're on that we are aging, and, and it's a fascinating thing. Was there anything about when you were asked to write this chapter about the Bible um, here in the year 2015, was there anything in what came up in you that surprised you that was maybe an approach you have to this that wouldn't have been there in your 20s or your 40s that you were oh, aware gosh. of? Um, that's a big question, and I... I, I I have to think for a moment. Um, I I suppose you know, as I've gone on, as I've gone on, as I've stopped growing and started aging, uh, I think that you become it's hardly an original insight of mine. You become acutely aware of the rapidity of the passage of time. Uh, uh, you know, when you uh, when you're twenty something, you. Uh, 60 seems like forever, yeah. and when you're 50-something, 60 seems like tomorrow. It is tomorrow. And I think that one of the things that's – one of the greatest generational differences, and I owe this insight to my father, Krista, actually, is between people who had, as my father's generation typically did, had children at the age of 20, so to speak, yeah. right? And those of us who generationally had children at the age of 35, roughly, so to speak. And one of the things he said is when you have kids at the age of 20, you all grow up together and you wake up and find yourself, uh, you know, close in age and close in experience. When you have kids at 40, so to speak, we actually have them a little younger, you, you uh, approach the edge of old age with your children still relatively young and being formed. Yeah. And I think that that uh, experience uh, affects everything that I that uh, I see and that I write about now. I'm acutely aware that when writing about the 1980s now, which seemed like yesterday to me, I'm writing about a lost historical period, a time that's as remote for my kids as the 1940s were for me growing up. And I think that you become uh, ever more uh, aware of the rapidity of time, the recession of the past, and therefore you become, I wish I could say you become more humble, but I think I would be lying if I said that. <laughs> I do think you become, uh, uh, you become less easily, uh, you become less easily convinced. You become more concerned with, I don't know if I can put this well, Krista, you become more concerned with describing the texture of experience before it can vanish than you do with shaping the necessities of experience for uh, your own time. That it seems to me that I'm at the moment as somebody who is aging, not growing, when getting right what experience felt like in the past seems to me um, somehow terribly vital. How that affects the way you uh, would approach writing about, you know, reading the Bible is maybe 
complicated, but if there's a connection there, I think that it's uh, a way of saying, look, here's the truth. People have been reading these books and looking at the pictures this book inspires and listening to the music that this book inspires for about as long as there have been people. That truth is in itself a truth. Whatever you make of all the attendant religious supernatural claims around it, that truth is central. And that truth can be honored on its own, if that makes any sense. That the truth about human engagement with, in this case with uh, scripture, isn't itself a significant thing. And it's not, that perception maybe, Krista, isn't completely divorced from your perception that time is racing and trying to witness your own experience is about as close as you can get. Witness your own experience accurately and fully and passionately is about as close as you can hope to get to writing another chapter <laughs> in the ongoing book. You, you wrote, you wrote, this is some language from that good book for the fugue of doubt and faith experienced as argument and art is the music of our lives. That puts it much more epigrammatically what I was struggling to say. Quite a beautiful way to say what you're saying. <laughs> what, that, that puts more, that's why I'm a writer, not a speaker, because that puts much more aphoristically what I've been struggling to say in the last few minutes. Oh. That fugue of doubt and faith is advanced as art and as argument is the inner music of our lives. That's, that's, I think that's so. I think that's so. And we can give, bearing witness to it is in itself uh, a full experience. John Updike was once asked why for an ad, I think, or like a whiskey ad or some crazy thing. Why, do, why are we here? Why do we live? Sounds like a ridiculous question, but he had an instant answer for it. He said, we're here to give praise. We're here to hmm. give praise. Hmm. All of our religious teaching and all of our spiritual experience can be summed up in that conception where we're on earth to give praise. And I loved that idea. And of course, one of the things that makes Updike's writing so moving even now is that it largely was devoted to it did not scant the horrors of existence, but it was largely devoted to recapturing the momentary happinesses of uh, ordinary experience. Mm. And his spirituality was, in effect, boded forth in terms of, of recreating, crystallizing the ecstatic moments in life. And if, if I have a faith that lies someplace in that impulse. Well, that's a fabulous last word. This has been just as much fun as I thought it would be. Thank you so much for making time. And Well, well I, I love doing it, I fear that I just bloviated a no. fog of, of words. No, and, you did I, not. You, it was great. And um, oh. it was... I a, love doing it. Thank good. you so much for having and, me. And uh, we'll let you know what's happening with this when it's going to sure. be on the air. And, uh, of course. Yeah, I'm just thrilled. And I... Uh, I hope I just keep hoping our paths will cross again. Maybe we'll just. Have They're to bound make that to up. do. It's Sarah yeah. Lawrence's graduation. If I not know. Some other well, time. will you be there? Will you be there this year? Yeah, I mean, I'll I'll be if, if you're sure. coming, I'll definitely I'm be there at commencement. Okay. Fantastic. I'll see All you right. at commencement. All right. Great. Bye bye. Bless you. Bye bye.